Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. I'm Jessica Bylander. Today, I'm talking to Rachel Jensen, an obstetrics and gynecology resident in Baltimore, Maryland. Jensen wrote the February Narrative Matters essay, which focuses on protecting access to abortion care. In the essay, she shares stories from the front line of OBGYN care and urges physicians to defend abortion care access within their communities. Rachel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So abortion care has obviously become a politicized issue, but you argue that it's an essential aspect of medical care. My sense from your essay is that there's a reticence from some physicians to come out and state that. Why did you want to write this essay and who is it targeted to? I think that the reticence is more out of a sense of discomfort than out of anything. Um, We all have sort of our wheelhouses, our subspecialties, our specialties that we're a part of. And it can be uncomfortable to step outside of that box and advocate for a different part of patient care than potentially you are used to doing so for. I think that this is a special circumstance because we have legislation and activists on the other side of the fence who are actively trying to oppose patients getting the care that they need. And so we really need sort of all hands on deck to help to provide um, that care and to get the word out about how important this is. I think the target audience for this piece would be other physicians who are perhaps thinking to themselves, I'm not sure if this is something that I should step out about, if I should speak to friends, family, neighbors, colleagues. Um, and to encourage them that even if you feel a little bit uncomfortable saying something is better than saying nothing at all. And what worries you most about the future of abortion care? That is a challenging question. Um, I think there are so many unknowns right now about sort of the direction that this is going to take legally. Um, We're seeing that there's more um, uh, court cases that are coming up, more legislation restrictions that are uh, being put in place. And I think that right now as physicians and uh, activists within this area, we're all thinking about how can we continue to provide this care for the most people um, in the best way possible. And I think that we're trying to come up with creative solutions for how to do that. And, And thank you for sharing this story with us today. Now, here is Rachel Jensen reading her essay, Abortion Care is Essential Medical Care. When I tell people that I am a resident in obstetrics and gynecology, or OBGYN, surprisingly few make the connection that I am an abortion care provider. While not all OBGYNs provide abortion care, learning abortion care is recommended for residents because it is part of providing comprehensive OBGYN care. In fact, performing abortions is one of the most rewarding parts of my job. In providing this medical service, I'm helping patients take control of their bodies and their futures. Most of the time, I wear this passion on my sleeve, but occasionally it feels easier to stick with the popular narrative that I spend all my workdays as the proverbial stork. Such a lie of omission is not something I'm proud of, but I have not always felt comfortable or safe disclosing that providing abortion care is part of my job let alone one of my biggest priorities. But silence is not benign, and for me, it is no longer an option. 
Now is the time to be vocal. Lives depend on it. Since the Supreme Court's Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision that overturned Roe v. Wade's constitutional protection of the right to abortion and the ensuing legal restrictions, more lives than ever are on the line. To frame abortion access as a life-or-death matter is not to sensationalize. I have seen firsthand lives saved by abortion care. I work in a large public hospital in an urban area where patients are often from marginalized communities and are under or uninsured. As a chief resident, I have now spent months of residency training in the reproductive health care clinic affiliated with our hospital, which provides abortion care during the week on an outpatient basis. In addition to this, I have frequently been called on to perform abortions as part of obstetrics or gynecology rotations, generally for patients in emergencies or with complex medical problems. I feel fortunate that my residency program prioritizes teaching the full spectrum of OBGYN care, including abortion care. Alarmingly, in residency programs with restrictive institutional policies or in abortion-hostile states, physicians are receiving insufficient abortion training to be able to perform potentially life-saving procedures. As a medical provider, I will always have certain cases that remain etched in my memory whether because of the length of the time spent with the patient, a point of personal connection, or a particularly positive or tragic outcome. I remember vividly one afternoon at the end of July, on one of the hottest days of the summer, when a patient presented at 21 weeks pregnancy with severe preeclampsia, a form of hypertension in pregnancy that can result in organ damage and even death. The only cure for preeclampsia is delivery, and at that early gestational age, it was inevitable that the fetus would not survive after birth. The unequivocally safest thing for the patient was to have an abortion. As I explained this disease and its consequences to the patient, her husband stood next to the bed holding her hand, which was painfully swollen from the preeclampsia. It was with solemnity that I counseled them that considering the severity of her condition, our recommendation was for her to have an abortion. This was met with a chorus of objections as she and her husband repeated again and again through their tears that this was their first successful pregnancy after 10 years of in vitro fertilization. They couldn't bear to lose the pregnancy. They clung to the hope that against all odds, her condition might improve. Within a matter of hours, her disease had progressed rapidly. Each laboratory draw indicated that her kidney and liver functioning were worsening, which could ultimately result in more serious damage to her brain and heart. Her platelet counts were dropping precipitously, indicating that her blood was losing the ability to form clots. Recognizing her abruptly declining health status, we transferred her to the intensive care unit, where she would be more closely monitored and cared for if she went into cardiac arrest or required intubation. Amid the beeping of monitors and flurry of ICU staff entering and exiting the room, the patient made the decision to proceed with an abortion, realizing that her life was in danger. As devastating as this situation was, I can only imagine how unbearable it would have been for her family to lose both her and the fetus she carried. This is the reality that is now being faced by patients and providers across the country who are unable to procure or provide this life-saving procedure because of legislation restricting abortion access. In such extraordinary cases, it is easy to lose sight of the fact that healthcare is about so much more than saving lives. Rather, it is about allowing people the opportunity to live healthy lives, both by treating illness and by promoting emotional and physical well-being. Providing that support can take a variety of forms, one of which is abortion care. 
Along this vein, I recall a patient who came to our office after she'd come to the hospital for a scheduled tubal ligation surgery, only to have a positive pregnancy test on arrival. She was a nurse and arrived at her appointment that day in scrubs. It was the last appointment slot of the day, and she was on her way to work a night shift in the emergency department. She sat down with a disappointed sigh and lamented, I just can't believe this happened. I was so careful. During the next few moments, she told me that she had planned to have a tubal ligation at the time of her last delivery. But when she went into labor, the closest hospital was a Catholic institution that forbade doctors from performing sterilization procedures or even prescribing certain kinds of birth control. Since then, she had been taking birth control pills every day, never missing a dose. Unfortunately, contraception failure is relatively common, and it can happen regardless of method or fidelity of use. The patient showed me a picture on her phone of her two young children, to whom she was clearly very deeply devoted, and expressed remorsefully that she didn't have the money or social support to provide for another child. I reassured her that she did not need to justify her decision to me. She said that she was grateful to have someone to talk to about this, since for her, it was a challenging decision, even as she knew it was the right one. I arranged for her to have her abortion and tubal ligation performed together the following week. I have heard the faulty argument that we live in a nation where birth control and sterilization are so easily available and accessible that abortion should be unnecessary. This instance, among many, illustrates that contraception and sterilization are neither of those things and do not obviate the need for abortion. Most recently, I had a patient whose story is both tragic and unsettling. Tragic with regard to why she needed an abortion, and unsettling in how that process unfolded. On a routine ultrasound at 20 weeks gestation, her cervix was found to be substantially dilated, such that extremely premature delivery was almost inevitable. She asked her OBGYN what her options were and was told that she would either wait until she progressed in preterm labor, which could be in a matter of days or a few weeks, or have an abortion. Even if she remained pregnant for a few more weeks, the fetus would likely be born in the period of periviability, a gestational age at which the fetus has only a small chance of surviving outside the body, and survival would mean at least a month's long stay in the neonatal ICU and often long-lasting neurologic and physical impairments. After careful deliberation with her partner, she decided to have an abortion. They did not want to start a family under the weight of an impending loss or a future of suffering for their child. For her, as with many patients, the costs of remaining pregnant, financial, physical, and emotional, were too great to justify continuation of the pregnancy. Having made this difficult decision, she then faced the challenge of obtaining an abortion. This patient lived in a state in which abortion is no longer legal. After hours of internet searching and countless calls to hospitals and clinics, she and her partner found a hospital that would be able to care for her. The next day, they boarded a plane and flew over state lines. Then they drove straight from the airport to the hospital. I met this patient in the hours after she had had her abortion, while she and her family were grieving and arranging for a burial. They expressed such profound thanks for the care she was able to receive at the hands of supportive and caring providers. While I appreciated their kind words, I couldn't help but feel sorrowful that their gratitude arose in part from being denied care elsewhere. Everyone who participated in their care that day, myself included, was simply doing their job, providing comprehensive and compassionate health care. No one in need of basic health care should have to jump such hurdles or hop on a plane to get it. And another patient in her circumstances might not have had the financial resources to do so. 
I am extremely fortunate to practice medicine in a state where abortion is legal and protected, where my patients face only the usual obstacles of limited providers, inadequate insurance, and lack of social supports. In the next phase of my training, I will be moving to a state where that is not the case. There, I will be able to provide abortion care only through 20 weeks gestational age, except in rare circumstances, circumstances that would exclude those of the last patient that I described. I will be legally obligated to read a standardized script to each of my patients, no matter their specific situation. For instance, if a patient is seeking an abortion for lethal fetal anomalies, they will still be subject to irrelevant and potentially psychologically harmful counseling on the options of adoption or child support. After this bias counsel, patients must wait three days before receiving abortion care, regardless of whether they have traveled from out of state or their employment is jeopardized by missing work for another appointment. Even with these restrictions, it is at least one of the few states in the South where patients can now get abortion care at all. The stories I've shared are only a few examples of the complicated situations and decisions that patients face every day. I've seen many others whose lives were potentially saved by abortion. Patients with heart failure who would not survive a pregnancy, patients in septic shock from a pregnancy-related infection, patients hemorrhaging from an abnormal placenta or bleeding disorder. I've sat with parents as they cry over the impossible choice of whether to let go of a pregnancy, knowing that their fetus would not survive outside the body because of lethal fetal anomalies. I've provided abortions for some of those patients, and for others, I've delivered their babies and then grieved with them as their infants died hours or days later. I have had patients who become pregnant with an intrauterine device in place or after a tubal ligation, some of whom embraced the pregnancy while others decided to have an abortion. I have seen patients decide to continue and to not continue pregnancies that were the result of rape. Many of these people faced what they felt was an immensely complicated decision, but the important thing is that they had a decision. To rob patients of that decision is to disregard both their lives and their dignity. These stories are also admittedly exceptional. Most pregnancies are not as complicated, and most people who have abortions do so under less fraught circumstances. These are not the only stories that deserve to be told, but I share them specifically because they reiterate the absolute vitality of protecting abortion access. As an abortion care provider, I believe that every person has a right to an abortion, no matter the reason. I do not expect everyone else to share that view. It is, however, my expectation that others respect my profession, our patients, and the decisions patients make regarding their health, and not make these decisions into a matter of public conscience. It is my task as a physician to provide patients with all of the health information necessary to make those decisions and to support them in whatever their choice may be. These conversations and their consequences are individual and nuanced in a way that is not reflected in the larger conversation about abortion taking place in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Somehow the sociopolitical rhetoric around abortion has become divorced from the perspectives of the physicians who provide them. Regardless of the moral, religious, or political connotations, abortion care is medical care. When the Dobbs case was first heard in the Supreme Court, I was confronted by a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. When the decision was leaked, it felt as if the floor had fallen from under my feet and the roof over my head had shattered. When the final decision was announced, I was ready to fight, both for my right to provide and for my patient's right to perceive abortion care. 
While attending the Women's March in Washington, D.C. shortly after the Dobbs decision, I was struck that in the numerous inspiring speeches, there was limited mention of abortion as a healthcare concern. I suspect that this is because the subject of abortion has become siloed as a social issue in some settings and a medical one in others. It is both, and credit is due to those both in and outside of healthcare who have worked to promote this duality in the public eye. I marched that Saturday in July because I'm not only infuriated at the broad infringement of human rights that the Roe versus Wade reversal portends, but also as an OBGYN physician who is deeply concerned about the threat to my patients' physical and mental health. Physicians in other disciplines share these concerns and likewise share the responsibility to advocate for the right to reproductive health care, including the right to abortion care. Physicians are by no means the most important participants in this dialogue, but reticence is unacceptable. It is increasingly apparent that the voices of abortion care providers alone are not enough. We need health care providers from a variety of disparate fields, such as surgery, pediatrics, and psychiatry, to lend their credence to the notion of abortion care as a critical aspect of medical care. In a time when abortion providers are at times risking their lives to provide essential health care, it is imperative that other physicians provide vocal and practical support for the sake of their patients and colleagues alike. Abortion providers are burning the candle at both ends, trying to provide the best possible care for our patients while now having to fight for the right to provide that care in the first place. In the moment, that fight can be invigorating, but it is also demoralizing, exhausting, and embittering. The denouncement of science implicit in abortion restrictions is insulting to the years of education, training, and service we have invested, and the hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical student debt we have incurred to become physicians. But that is nothing compared to the anguish of breaking that sacred oath of do no harm, as is inherent in denying a patient the essential health care service that is abortion. Abortion providers cannot confront this issue alone. We are too few and the need is too great. To assertively support abortion care can be uncomfortable, but we need to put a familiar face to the refrain of why we must protect abortion rights in this country. It is perhaps even more powerful if it is the face of the provider who delivered one's baby, performed one's heart surgery, or treated one's cancer. In addition to these professional roles, every physician is someone's neighbor, friend, or child. In an ideal world, we might all leave our white coats at the office, but our world is far from ideal. The power to change minds often lies in personal connection. And where we may feel powerless to enact sweeping reform, having the courage to engage in a dialogue with someone of differing views can result in a domino effect of transformative conversation. Regardless of specific field, as physicians, we can offer our expertise and our narratives to refocus abortion from a political windstorm to a matter of individualized medical care. This is perhaps outside the traditional job description. But healthcare is a team sport, and we must uplift and support one another in support of our patients. During my last call shift, I performed an abortion for a hemorrhaging patient whose life was at risk, delivered a stillborn infant to an anguished first-time parent, and performed a cesarean section resulting in the birth of a healthy baby. It was not an easy day, but I left knowing that I had given each of those patients the medical care and support that they needed. It is truly a privilege to be trusted by patients in their most vulnerable moments, and one that cannot be honored by silence. Physicians have too much power to be bystanders. We must be consistently vocal about who we are, why we support or provide abortion care, and how we will not be stopped or silenced.
That was Rachel Jensen reading her essay, Abortion Care is Essential Medical Care. Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you liked this episode, tell a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.